Today's episode of the Chain Clinkers Disc Golf Podcast features the top five mistakes you're making as a disc golfer and how to fix them. Let's get into it right now. Hey, I'm Logan Harpool with Team Dynamic Discs, and you're listening to the Chain Clinkers Podcast. Welcome in, everybody, to the Chain Clinkers Disc Golf Podcast, presented by Upper Park Disc Golf. You've heard us say it on every episode this year, but they truly do have some of the best, most high-quality disc golf bags on the marketplace right now. If you are looking to upgrade your bag or you're looking for a more durable disc golf bag that can hold more discs than what you currently have you have to check out the pinch pro this thing comes in at uh, just under a hundred dollars using our code clinkers 10 you can get over 30 discs in there it is a awesome bag if you're a pro like our guest today or if you're a new player again promo code clinkers 10 helps us and you support Upper Park, which has supported us. So we highly appreciate them. Today, we have a fantastic guest with us, a local pro who has really made a name for himself on the Disc Golf Pro Tour. He was our first ever guest on the podcast. He gave us a opportunity to grow and get some other people on the podcast and cannot be more thankful for Logan Harpool joining us again. He has a winning percentage near 30%, folks. That is an insane number to think about. Logan, how are we doing tonight? I'm great. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah, we are uh, very excited. I know I have not chit-chatted with you outside of the four or five holes that we managed to uh, snag with you on Friday at Camp Hawk in Newton. So uh, can't wait to get this thing rolling, man. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, no problem. I, uh, funny, I ran into you guys and I told Louie, I was like, man, it's time for us to talk again. When I was on here the first time, we shut it down and we sat and talked for a while. And I said, the way you guys are doing things, you have no problem getting big names on here. And uh, it was him and Horatio at the time. And I don't think you guys believe me, but uh, you guys are stand-up guys. You do the right thing and your intentions are in the right place. So it's no surprise you've been successful. Yeah. Definitely appreciate the kind words there. I know that I was calling BS in my head when you were saying that. I was like, ah, you know, you know, hey, maybe we'll see what happens. And it's just, it's incredible to see what has ha- what's transpired over the last two years. So uh, super excited to get into this episode. I think this is going to help a lot of disc golfers who are struggling and making basic mistakes that are holding their game back. But before we get into that, I want to talk a little bit about you. And for, before that, I also want to discuss what do you think is your favorite course in the Wichita area I mean that was the first time that we played Camp Hawk when we ran into each other the other day and I gotta say that was a very fun course to play I feel like it's got a lot of good qualities that Colwich has but some other challenges that make it more fun than that course what how how would you kind of rank those courses is that like especially with you how you know your skill level your rating is that kind of the course that you're going to be drawn to more to kind of get more aspects of what it's like on the pro tour. Yeah. In terms of preparing for the next level, that's a good one. I think it's one of the best ones we have for sure. Uh, One thing I take into consideration is length. I like longer courses, not necessarily wide open, but when you get on tour, you don't have the gimme straight to 80, nothing in the way. So yeah, the new Camp Hawk layout is legit. It's fun. Uh, they're improving it day after day, too. They're cleaning it up. I hope they don't clean it up too much because that's what makes it fun right now. But it's fair. There's no trees where you're supposed to throw it. And if you don't throw it where you're supposed to, you're kind of screwed. So I like it a lot. Aside from that, I'm partial to clap because it lets you let it fly. The length is there. And there's so many layouts out there that if you want the wooded one, you can play the wooded one. If you want the long bomber one, you can play that one. So uh, in terms of what I'm looking for to prepare, those are the two that I'm going to stick to. But yeah, Camp Hawk, at the rate they're improving that place, I don't really know what more they can do, but it's awesome and it's close to home for me, so I don't mind the drive either. Yeah, I definitely had a great time. Like like you said, that was the first time uh, we had either either one of us had been out there to play it, and definitely we played the Red 18, I believe is what it's called, the new Red layout or whatever. It was It was a great time. I mean, it, there's a little bit of elevation change for everyone that's not from around here, which is a lot different than a lot of the courses in Kansas. And then, like you said, some big bomber holes with a few fairways that or with a few trees in the fairway, but they are definitely fair fairways. So it's a good time. I couldn't agree more. I just need to be able to throw it a little further and I'll have a lot more fun, I think. <laughs> that's fair i think a lot of disc golfers feel uh, uh that as well one more question on it i know i've seen you plenty of times out at uh 
uh, I'm going to butcher that. I think it's called Hat McLean, the Park City course. Uh, is that just, uh, you know, close, easy, especially in the wintertime, you can knock that out? Or are there a couple holes out there that you're trying to simulate something that's on the Pro Tour? Yeah, I have some of my own layouts I play out there. I've, I've never played it backwards because it's pretty busy. There's a lot of people walking, but I like to skip a hole. So I play one to two's basket, three to four, four to five, and so on. Later on, you have to switch it up, but everything's a par four, and um, you just get creative, and if it's too wide open, you pick a landing zone, and you say, I have to throw it here, or you know, put a little extra pressure on yourself. But I play Hap because it is closest to home for me, and it's never busy, so I can kind of do what I want. I can play those extra layouts and not worry about getting in anybody's way, and I pretty much know everyone that plays there, too. It doesn't get visited very often, so it's uh, you're kind of seeing your buddies every time you're there if they are there. But for the most part, I can't tell you how many times I've been the only car in that parking lot. Yeah, that would be, that'd be awesome to throw a little bit alternate layout. I have a good time on the la last like seven holes, but those are a little bit shorter. So makes sense. But I do have one question because out of all the courses in town, um, I'm not knocking the baskets at all, but they are the, not the, they're not the best or the most premier, do you think um, practicing on baskets that aren't quite – I mean, I like to think they don't catch that great. Granted, I'm amateur, but um, I think they catch just fine. They just don't catch as well as some. Is, is there something to be said about maybe playing on the baskets that aren't as fancy or don't have as many chains as some of the others? Yeah, those are – I don't want to say the name because I don't want to sling mud on a podcast, but they have sliding chains. I don't know if you've noticed that, so they move. So if you ever play a tournament there and you, you're looking at, like, I don't know if the video version people watch, but there are gaps where you can see an inch right and an inch left of the pole if the chains aren't where they're supposed to be. You can actually walk up and move the chain about three inches over to cover the pole. Okay. So they, uh, yeah, they, they're not the greatest, but they're certainly not the worst. Yeah. Um, and I think, uh, I think we might hit on this later, but you have to change your putt. You have to adapt your putt for the baskets you're playing on. And the best players in the world already do that. Me being a nose up spin putter, I have to make sure to get the nose up or the nose down. Cause if I go in flat, I'm going to hit the pole on any basket and come right back out. So I, I probably change it a little bit, but I'm also when I'm there, I'm practicing. So I'm trying to have a right to left putt and a left to right putt. And I don't putt everything the same way every time in a tournament. If I can, that's great, but I want to, have the most versatile putt I possibly can. So I'm changing it as much as I can, but those baskets, they're okay. They're like I said, they're not the greatest. I don't think they're approved for a tiers. Mm. So if that tells you anything, I, I don't know. The sliding chains are a little weird. Yeah. I didn't notice that. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, yeah. And for us, we have started to go there more to record kind of with what you said earlier was there's not going to be as many people there. And, we just got Horatio back on the team. He's going to be doing a lot more of our YouTube content. And the day we went out to record, I think everybody and their mother got an invite to show <laughs> up because the parking lot was literally full. There was no league. Nothing was going on. It was just – it was a ton of families. I mean you had kids galore out there actually playing disc golf. And, and a part of me was like, shoot, we are going to be waiting a long time to do what we need to do. But the other part of me was so excited because that would not have happened five years ago. And the acceleration and the growth of this sport and, and families getting into it I think is going to be key for the overall success of the sport. But I want to talk a little bit about you and your career now. The last time we had spoke, you know, you said that, Getting on the tour, playing pro tour events is something you want to do, but that's not going to consume your life. You're not going to be somebody who's on the tour every single stop, every single weekend. You've got a job here. You've got a life here. Is that still kind of what's going on with you, or are we looking at a bigger tour schedule this year? Definitely a bigger schedule, but I'm not changing the things that I hold most important to me. And disc golf is important. I want to pursue it, and I want to absolutely send it. I've told the people closest to me, you know, I'm, I may not be here for a long time, so I might as well have a good time. So I'm going for everything I can within reason. I'm going to play Waco, open at Austin, Jonesboro. And then as far as the summer, everything from Portland to Ledgestone, except for Europe. And instead of Europe, I'm going to Alaska for the Alaska State Championship. So I'm doing as much as I can while still teaching. So I don't want to back away from that. I could and probably be comfortable, but 
I think most people don't understand. Like, it seems like the dream job, and for a lot of people it is, but life on the road touring is hard. And if you're not cut out for it, it's not for you. And I have no shame in saying it's not for me full time. I love doing it for three and a half months out of the year. And considering that's the only time I'm out there and I still qualified for a tour card, it does kind of make you wonder what happens if I dedicated everything. But I've talked to some of my closest friends on tour and they even told me, you know, to back away from what you have, you'd be kind of crazy at 28 to leave your security and your, your salary, your insurance, your benefits and all that. And life gets in the way. And I'm fortunate to be 28 and not have a lot of the real responsibilities, not married, no kids. So I can still do adult things and still chase the dream while I can. And that won't last forever. So I'm going to enjoy it while I can. Yeah, that is, uh, that is awesome. I'm, uh, I'm a little bit jealous. It'd be fun to be able to get out there and sling, uh, like you said, I probably wouldn't be cut out for the, the tour, but um, I, that, that would be amazing. But I do have one question. What is, what is one tournament you are the most excited about in your, in your lineup for this, this season? I'm always excited to get back to the preserve. I've always played well there. Last year, I was one of the worst putters in the field, and I still finished inside, I think I was 26, right around top 25. And I was like 101st in the field in putting, just couldn't connect. But I was throwing the disc better than, better than a lot of people. So I'm excited to get back there and relax. And I think that's the main thing I can do this year is relax. Because now I have not all the experience, but I feel like I have enough. I've failed in front of thousands. I've succeeded in front of thousands. So I just feel super calm. And I haven't felt like this going into a season before where I'm like, I know how to do it now. I know what I need to do. Whether I do it or not, I don't know. But I know how to. So uh alaska definitely excited for alaska i've heard great things about meyer lake and just being there it's a bucket list trip excited to get back to portland i missed the cut there last year had the worst tournament in my career so um, those, there's no reason i don't play well on those courses i know exactly what went wrong it was all in my head so i'm excited for a little redemption and then it's tough to say all those tour courses are super fun and that's kind of how I set my schedule now. I'll go wherever the tour is going to go during the summer when I can, because that's the only time I can. But if a tournament doesn't excite me and I'm not going to have fun, I'm probably not going to go. So I'm looking forward to everywhere, but the preserve in Alaska for sure. I think that's a really good way of looking at it, especially because, you know, you can still get into majors. You play good at a couple of tournaments. You qualify for USDGC. Of course, you're going to be playing Worlds. I can't exactly think in my head the timeline for Champions Cup, but maybe that's a possibility. And, I mean, heck, if you play good enough at the events, you can still get into the Tour Championship at the end of the year. So I also feel as though you get a little bit of an advantage by not being on such a grind for nine months out of the year that you almost get to come into these tournaments more fresh in the ability to go hard for this spurt of time and really give it your all instead of being like, well, you know, there's always – you know, the next tournament or something like that, like you're going for everything right now. So I think that has an advantage and I'm really excited to watch you and see on coverage this year in Alaska, man, I've been talking to Trenton about this for so many months now that I want to go to Alaska and I want to play that uh, course designed by Eric McCabe there. So I know I'm going to have to talk to you after the Alaska trip. That is going to be a ton of fun for sure. But what would you say is your biggest goal for 2023 when you when a year from now and you're looking back at what transpired in 2023 how would you define this year as a success my biggest downfall in the past has been consistency so that's the number one thing that i want to improve on is week in and week out staying inside that top 25 i do believe i have what it takes to win uh, Brian Earhart on the Disc Golf Network documentary mentioned that if you want to have a 40-hour work week and win a pro tour, it's an anomaly. And I agree uh, because it hasn't really been done yet in the modern era of disc golf. Back in the day, everybody had jobs and were weekend warriors on tour, but you don't see that anymore. So obviously I want to win. I think the dynamic disc open was a lot closer than the final score indicated. There were a couple, I can find two shots that if I did those two shots differently, I put a lot of pressure on Rick. I was in solo second for a lot of that final round. And so I was that close and I know what it took to get there. I know the headspace I was in. So I know I can win, but beating those guys is, you gotta be on, on top of your game. So 
I want to hang around that top 25 and push higher and remain there and not have missed cuts and not have the 50th place finish and stuff. So if I'm able to do that, I'll be happy. I know that winning is tough to do, uh, but I'm not going to show up to an event. I don't believe I can win. And I mean that it's not the way I'm wired. I think I fell into that as a rookie and in my second year on tour, just kind of being happy to be there. But there's a, those days are done. I, I'm not going to go if I don't believe I can win. Yeah, sometimes you gotta you gotta let the dog in you out, like Q likes to say. The dog, get let that dog out and let him. Yeah, you gotta let that dog <laughs> in you, yes, sir. You gotta let him get well, out. Hey, there I think that's fun. some awesome stuff, man. I'm I'm looking forward to it. Let's get into the educa- educational part of today's episode. So we want to talk about five mistakes disc golfers are doing, problems that disc golfers are having. And we'll kind of maybe count down from five to one, and and Logan will give his things that he sees that disc golfers are doing incorrectly, and we'll kind of talk about how we can fix that and help you become a better disc golfer. So, Logan, why don't you start us off? What is number five on the list? All right, starting with number five, people are throwing the wrong discs. They are throwing what they see people throwing. They're throwing what they think is cool, and they're not throwing what works for them. And it's I don't know how many times I see people wrenching on overstable 13, 14 speed drivers in Kansas and there's no wind. You just don't need them if there's no wind. So people are throwing the wrong stuff, um, not necessarily in terms of manufacturer, but just the stuff that doesn't work for them. Yeah, we've, we've definitely hit on that quite a bit. I do have one follow-up. So what would you recommend? So say someone out there is grabbing that 13, 14 speed, like you talk about, and Maybe they think they throw it good one out of eight times, so they keep grabbing it. What would you recommend in, I don't know, say it's like a 300-foot hole and they're grabbing a, what's a 13, I don't know, some 13-speed, crazy speedy, crazy fast. What would you recommend instead of grabbing that high-speed overstable disc? I think our starter pack is great. The plastic only lasts you so long if you're wanting to play better, but the escape, the truth, and the judge are in there. The escape, I think anybody can throw. It's a driver that has a little bit of speed, but it's a neutral flyer. So I would recommend that speed range. I'm terrible with flight numbers. I should be better. There are discs, but I think it's an eight or a nine, right around in that range. So escape, explorer, something a little slower and neutral flying. When you know what you're doing and you understand how distance is achieved, it doesn't matter the disc you throw. You can pump anything out there. I think that's a really good comment that you just made. Of if you can, if you understand how the disc works, it doesn't matter what the distance is. You can make the disc work for you. I think that's something that I know I've been working on a lot this year is going more to mids and putters. There's an infamous moment on this podcast where I said that mids are fake and you don't need to throw <laughs> mid ranges. And I regret that oh, every time man. Horatio tells me about it uh, because I'm trying to be the champion of, no, you should actually use your mid ranges, especially because you'll have a lot less side to side movement and you're going to be able to hit your lines more like that's today when we're recording this on Thursday. That's what the Instagram reel was about. Right. And so I guess to follow up on that one more question before we move to the next point, is there a distance marker for you in your head of like, Hey, I can throw this explorer, or this escape 350 feet, but I can't really get to 360, 375. Is that maybe when it's time to bump up to something like a Raider or a trespass or something of a higher speed nature or is it maybe more of a well you can get more out of that you just have to go back and work on your form like is there a key moment where you should start throwing those higher speed discs yeah i play a lot of regular golf too and you have to know your club distances and my pitching wedge flies to 120 and then my nine iron pushes to 130 135 and my eight and so on And by the time you get to a four iron, you're a little over 200, 210, 215, something like that. So I think your discs are the same way when it comes to competition. Obviously, when you're goofing around, you can throw a putter pretty far if the conditions are right. But if there's no wind, wind is the number one thing. And living in Kansas, we're probably more cognizant of it than others. But you need the fast stuff if you're going to fight wind. You don't want to rip and explore into a headwind unless you're just super crafty. But understanding how far they go i'll never try to throw an invader over 415 and if there's no wind flat ground like what comes to mind hole 
seven at the preserve. It's over water, super scenic. It's right before the massive par five. If there's wind, I throw an enforcer. If not, I've thrown an EMAC truth. And it's like 405 feet, I think. It's pretty far. But the conditions of that hole dictate it. I mean, you can go straight at it with a mid or with that fairway driver. But yes, the when we get to the next hole, the big par five, I would never throw an explorer off that tee. I'm going to try to bite off as much as I can because I'm going max distance. So I'm going to go ballista pro, put it high in the air and let it work. So yeah, I think there is, like I said, you can make any disc go far, but should you? Probably not. So knowing, understanding that your bag sets up a lot like golf clubs, that can help you a lot. Just another field work shout. Or if you can't get to the field, make sure you're paying attention to how far they're going when you're out on the course. And it'll make a huge difference when you're out there playing everybody. It'll, it'll change your game. Yeah, that's a good shout. Okay, Logan, what's number four on the list? Number four, I broke it down into two things. And one specific, people throw nose up all the time and they don't realize it and it's linked to bad form. And so what happens when you throw nose up, discs react to how much air is hitting the front of them when they're flying, just like an airplane. That's why airplanes take off into headwinds because they have more resistance. It helps them get up. So if you throw nose up, your driver that's supposed to be a little sleeker actually takes on the profile of a mid. There's more of the disc getting air against the front of it, so it's going to be forced up. It's not going to fly the way it wants to. So if you're going to make discs fly the way they're supposed to, they ha- you have to utilize the profile and keep them flat. As someone who admittedly struggles with nose up and nose angles, what is, I mean, what was the aha moment that eventually, like when you finally got the disc, because we all know eventually, at first you weren't always throwing just bombs. You were throwing a little nose up. What was the aha moment that could kind of help us people that are trying to figure this out kind of uh, get that down? I know it's not going to be right away, but what was what was something that really helped with that? Well, for me to get distance, I don't have the big, I've kind of developed a big turning full flight shot, but most of my shots are what people call golf shots, low line, more, no more than 10 foot high off the ground and a missile. So that's what I settled into. And I think it, honestly, I've mentioned this three times already, it comes from living in Kansas and I have to fight the wind and the higher the disc gets, the more the wind can control it before it gets to the ground. So it can get pushed, turned, flipped, vectored, all that stuff, get weird bounces. But if I keep it about 10 feet off the ground, not only does it have no choice but to continue forward rather than dump and fade side to side, it's going to continue to push forward, but I could avoid the wind. I could stay under the what I couldn't see up above us because I'm, con- I'm no meteorologist, but the wind does some weird stuff here. So... What you feel on the tee pad is not always what's in the fairway. So in keeping it lower, I just felt I had more control. I don't necessarily remember one instance where I was like, oh, I have to keep it flat now. It was just, you hear it, you hear about throwing nose up, nose down. And once I heard it explained to me why throwing nose up, like the number one complaint is my mids, my fairways and my distance driver all go the same distance. Why? Because you're throwing your mids flat and then you try to muscle your drivers and in throwing them nose up, they now act like a mid range because there's more of the disc feeling the wind. So to keep the disc flat, how should you position your body? I guess this kind of is two parts. First one, when you have the disc and you are getting ready to go through your reach back, should you be holding, I'm going to try to face it as if I was driving toward the wall here. Should you have your disc in a nose, I guess, hyzer position in your hand during your reach back? Should it be flat or should it be in an anhyzer? And so like, is there a hand position that you should have the disc in as well as if it's, if like, I guess, is your body the part that controls your release angle or is it how you have your wrist during the reach back, if that makes sense? Yeah, it does. I don't think it's so much the wrist because I asked Danny Lind all this. I sent him a bunch of screenshots of pros and I said, why do these pros reach back on Anheuser so much? And I've started to, I don't know why. I don't try to. I've started to reach back on Anheuser and a lot of the big throwers reach back on Anheuser. So I don't think that's necessarily important but I think the level you reach back is. And if you're able to keep it on plane to where it's moving through flat, 
and do as I say, not as I do, because I actually have a high reach back that tips before it comes through. Um, my reach back is early, just ever so slightly. So I have a weird lean and then it comes through. But I've heard Eric McCabe say, pretend that your disc is a tray of drinks and you don't want to spill them. So you're going to keep it level. And I don't know how well you guys can see, but if your arm is able to stay at a 30 degree and go straight forward and straight back, straight back and straight forward, the disc will come out flat. But if you're doing this weird stuff up and down, that's where you're going to have nose angle issues. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so ahead, I, sorry. Uh, sorry, I was just going to sum, summarize that. So if I'm hearing you correctly, it's not necessarily about how you are holding the disc. It's more about the arm plane that your reach back is, and you want to make that consistent. And if you want to throw an Anheuser, maybe you have a higher reach back. If you want to throw a Heiser, maybe you have a lower one. But if you want to throw flat, it just needs to be straight parallel, right? I think so. Don't quote me on that and certainly don't watch me because I'm not the best at it. But if you watch guys like Simon and Gannon, big throwers that are very smooth, their reach backs are pretty low and the disc is pretty much coming straight through. Then if they're going to throw higher in the air, it might change a little bit. But I, I would encourage listeners to focus more on a flat reach and pull rather than the wrist game. The wrist game you can tinker with later, but when you see these reach backs coming up and dropping down, or like me, the reach back is actually good, but then my front foot has to get down and then I tilt and there's that little lean. So it's gotten better. It's still not perfect, but I think that's a better cue than, and it's easier to do than have your wrist perfect because there's a, a small margin for error with messing with your wrist. Earlier, you were talking about how you want to keep the disc closer to the ground you don't want to throw it super high up because the wind can do a ton of crazy things to it right i completely agree and and it's funny i'm taking some of the guys i work with out to the course i took them out for the first time last saturday i'm trying to get them to go again this saturday trying to get them uh caught by the little disc golf bug there and and they were talking to me the other day and they're like well why do we why didn't we go on sunday when it wasn't windy first off I was going to Camp Lock with Trenton. <laughs> Second <laughs> off, I knew they were going to hate that course. Third, I think it's important to get exposure in the wind because if you, especially if you're in Kansas or if you're in the Midwest, right, you play disc golf in the wind. When there is not wind, that's when it's abnormal. We aren't, you know, we don't have the luxury of not playing in the wind. So where I'm going with this is. What is a good distance off the ground marker? Should it be, you know, chest high? That's really about where you want your disc to be off the ground. Should it be waist high, shin high? Like for you, what is a good distance marker height wise that the disc should be off the ground? On a non-windy day, I'm really not good at estimating distances. That's why I carry a rangefinder. I'm terrible at eyeballing distances. But I, I let it get a little bit higher, but still not as high as some of the other pros can put it. Um, I would say 25, 20 to 25 feet in the air, and that's pretty high. Um, I wouldn't encourage everybody to try to throw low-line missiles like I do, but I think it's a good place to start and, because it forces you to drive the disc forward rather than anything else. And it's going to – keeping the disc flat is so important. And that's what you want to learn first before you start throwing big high flex shots. And yeah, I, I'll put it a little bit higher, but my default setting is to throw low and driven probably 15 to 20 feet tops. And I don't really get too squirrely outside of that. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. What is the third mistake disc golfers are making? The third one. And this is what we mentioned earlier that I said, we come back to people practice one putt on one angle and they think that that's going to make them successful and it will help. But if you putt inside and I putt inside all winter long, but if you practice one putt that's on hyzer that drops, what do you do when it's a right to left wind? What do you do when it's a hard left to right? You have to be able to manipulate your putt. And that's what the best guys in the sport are so good at. Uh, Paul, Rick, Eagle, the best putters in the game. They don't putt it the same way every time. And I'm convinced over the course of our career, we may never have the exact same putt two times because there's a little breeze or there's a little elevation or the basket's different and you have to use a different nose angle to get it to catch. So people that putt one way all the time and they play in no wind, 
what happens when it's breezy on tournament day and you can't manipulate your putt and your body is unfamiliar with putting on an Anheuser or putting one a little higher and letting it drop. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. So for the for the guy out there who does take... 15 putters and stand in the same spot and putt the same exact way. What, what kind of drill would you recommend for them to kind of work on these different angles and have that different exposure to different wind and all the above that you just mentioned? Well, you still want to do what you're doing. And I tell people you, you still want to put up at least a hundred a day dead on because there's nothing more frustrating than no wind and you miss 20 footers that should never happen if there's no wind you can use your putt you can putt it however you want but we hardly ever play in no wind at all so i say just force yourself like uh, q was talking about get out when it's windy and circle around the basket and when you know the wind is out of the north putt from the east putt from the west putt from the south get all those different wind reads and it's not something you can do if you play in a group that's why you have to go out and work on your own. So the putting down the hallway is great. You still need to do it. Um, like I said, you don't want to miss the wide open 20 footer with no wind and having that one putt, like your putt is important, but also learn to manipulate that putt. Perfect. Yeah. I like that a lot. Something I would add to that for me personally that I have seen help is I will go from doing uh putting you know staggered to then going out wide or you know just changing my feet so that way if I do have to step around a tree or something like that it's it feels a lot more normal is that something that you should you know incorporate more into your putting routine should you be trying to get uh, you know the same amount of reps from each of the two main ways of putting or should you you know 75% of your time on your normal stuff 25% on the oddball stuff what, what's a good time allocation I, I don't know in terms of time allocation but it is important to get on a knee and practice those and uh, not only to do it in your hallway but to do it outside too because then you're going to have wind reads and I know for me I put down my hallway so I literally have tunnel vision when I putt and there's no distractions no other option than to putt it dead straight so when i go outside i have i actually still imagine my hallway and it helps me <laughs> but it's important to get outside to where you see the distractions and you see leaves blowing and you don't have that tunnel vision but yeah get on a knee every scenario because i guarantee everybody's going to get into a tournament and it happened to me multiple times and you have a shot that you're like i've never done this i think i know how to do it but i've never tried it and that's why I chose my putting style because my putting style has evolved quite a bit. It's always been a nose up spin putt, but I used to drop it real low and then bring it up and go. And this year I kind of just brought it down a little bit below my belt and went. And now this year I literally just go from my belt buckle straight at the basket. And it's like, I'm just playing catch. So when I go to a knee, it's no different. When I straddle, it's no different. I get to use the same stroke. The only difference is my legs are taken in and out. So guys that are more leg dominant or someone like a Gannon, when Gannon has to go to a knee, his swing is a little different. Now he's tall enough and long enough that he gets away with a lot of that. And he works extremely hard not to take anything away from him. But if you have a more unique putt like that, you really need to put yourself in a lot more situations to master it. Yeah, that's all fantastic uh, advice. And I know for myself, I've been working on straddle a little bit more because I find myself doing it more than I uh seemed to before and it's been a game changer i've actually had to do the same thing logan i used to kind of well when i first started i did this crazy like page pierce type thing because you know 
that's what Paige did, and she was good. And then now I've kind of just have a spot locked in, take it to my belt buckle, and then go straight through and try not to think about it too much. And it's paid dividends, but um, that's that's some good stuff. Get out there and practice all your putts, people. So what do you got for us on number two? A quick story, oh, real quick. Story. It's kind of funny. I I practiced with Clint Calvin for the Dynamic Dis Open, and when we got done at Country Club. I stood up the hill for a death putt on 18 because it's the elevated basket on a downslope. And I said, I don't know what it is, but I feel like I'm going to have this putt. And so I stood there and I putted that death putt. I went like one for 20. And I finally made the last one. I was like, whatever, Clint, hopefully I don't have that putt. <laughs> Final round to finish on the podium, I had that putt. And I made it, and which was huge because if I missed that, I would have taken... If I went OB, it was probably outside the top 10. If it hits and sits, I take seventh, and I finish third. And so that night, Clint messaged me. He was like, you got to be kidding me. That was the exact same putt. So when you play those practice rounds, too, it's important to, I might land here, even though this putt is no fun at all. I'm going to practice this putt. So, yeah, I had, I was confident in the moment, but honestly, throwing those up shots and stuff in the rounds prior, I was like, don't leave it up the hill, because you were one for 20 in practice, dude. I don't like those odds. So, yeah, old, old Clint will know what I'm talking about if he listens to this. It was a heck of a time. Hey, you might have missed all but one, but since you had practiced it a little bit, you had to feel much better than if if you would have just had to do it without any of that. So, Tunnel vision. Exactly. Thousands of people watching, cameras in your face. Like You got no option, dude. You got to send it. It was awesome. Go for it. I was there. So, number two, people are playing. They're not working. There's a difference. Playing rounds, you use the word play because you're playing rounds. You say field work because you're working. You get better by working. I love it. I mean, I agree with this yeah. a lot. Uh, I think I, I think it's one of those things where if you only play rounds, you don't do any field work, you don't do any extra practice putting, I don't think you can have the expectation that you are going to see massive ratings jumps or if you're not playing in tournaments, you're going to see yourself get better at the same course that you go to every time. Because I also think, and I know this happens to me all the time, it's, let's say, uh, what's a good example, hole 13 at Oak. I'm going to throw the exact same disc every single time because that's what I throw on hole 13 at Oak. I'm not working on my shot selection. I'm not working on learning something else. I just have this one disc in my bag for this one shot on this one course. That does not make you a well-rounded disc golfer. So that leads me to ask, how can you become a more well-rounded disc golfer? What are some drills that people can do in the field that will make them improve their game? Yeah, you got to be careful because we're just now getting into – or I say just now, at least now that I'm paying attention, more and more disc golfers are getting hurt. And I think it's important to have yourself on a pitch count like pitchers in baseball because disc golf is hard on your body. And especially if you're throwing a lot of forehands, your arm is taking some serious abuse. But I think you should go to the field. You should take your bag. The field work bags are great, but there's no substitute for getting to know the disc you're actually throwing. Throw everything straight and flat. Throw everything on Annie. Throw everything on Heiser. Go out and throw them back. If you do your whole bag three ways, you have 20 discs three ways, 60 throws, that's a round. That's a round on a very long course, and that's almost your pitch count. 60 hard, because people are probably going to throw them kind of hard too. That's a lot, and it doesn't take you that long. You'll be surprised, but that's how you get to know your stuff. Then you'll realize, oh, I'm kind of bad at throwing my bard on an Anheuser for some reason. Okay, give me a stack of bards. Let's go get better at that so it's not a weakness. And... I've had people ask me, like, why, why don't you come to more leagues and why don't – well, number one, because I'm on the road a lot. I'm not here a lot. And two, if I'm going to throw, I want to be getting better. And me personally, I don't feel like I develop or improve skill in a round. I don't know about other people. If you struggle with nerves and pressure, go play the leagues. But for me, if I'm working, number one, I don't tend to enjoy having a ton of people around me because then I feel like I slow them down. And I'm not going to be the guy that puts five on every basket because that's just annoying. So I try to do it more on my own. But taking your stuff to a field, throw it all one way, throw it all another, throw it all another. And you'll also learn like, okay, that disc doesn't like that flight, so I'm never going to use it for that. Instead, I'm going to use this disc. 
Yeah, that's that's some awesome stuff, especially for learning your bag and all of that. So what I, I do have one one question. What are your thoughts for the people who aren't able to get out and uh, like you said, a round isn't always the best spot to learn, but for the people who can't get to the field, what are your thoughts on throwing into a net? I think it's good. I think you want to video it. You can't just go on field because a lot of things are going to feel really good. You see professional golfers all the time in the range or on the range, they lay down a stick to make sure their feet are truly straight because even the best golfers in the world, what feels like they're lined up straight isn't always straight. So throwing into a net is great. It's great for your body. It's great to develop that uh, repetition and to improve your form for when you can get outside. Um, in terms of learning what your discs do, not great. But in terms of developing solid habits or breaking bad habits, I think it's a good thing. And then you saw me throw in standstill because I decided before that round I was going to throw a whole round standstill. What are your thoughts? And we've kind of recommended that for new players, um, at least at first. What are your thoughts on standstill? And uh, yeah, just high level, what are your thoughts on doing the standstill early on? I think it's fine. I, I think there's a lot of benefit to it. It keeps you compact. It keeps you from trying to throw too far because it's, for a lot of people, it's impossible to throw far on a standstill. Um, I think the one downside is that your timing isn't developing and timing is one of the most important things. Uh, but I don't think you guys are wrong in, in recommending that to new players because it removes a lot of variables. It removes poor timing. It removes um, nasty footwork. And, and it lets you feel the path of the disc and what the release point likely should be. So I think that's a good starting point, uh, especially I've never done that. But you're going to be in situations. I remember uh, back when it was the glass blown open, I was on a coal, on a card with Cole Radolin and a couple other guys that um, are still on tour. And we didn't, Cole was just, I think was just starting out on tour. I was brand new. So it's kind of funny that we didn't know who any of us were, but now we're, we're touring together. Uh, but Cole on 18 at the country club was in mud and the hyzer up around the tree that we play now, he threw that standstill from the mud, Wow. which is a smash. And I asked him, I was like, dude, how in the world did you do that? Because Cole wasn't built like he is now. He was wiry, skinny. He was smaller. And he said, I practiced it. I, that's nothing new. I practiced that standstill. I'm like, well, guess we better start practicing standstills because that was incredible. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, here it is. Number one, what is the number one mistake that disc golfers are making and how to avoid it? The number one mistake is – there are a lot of prideful people who think they know everything. And I know that's unpopular to say, but I did form reviews this off season. And let me just say, I don't know nearly as much as the top guys in the game. I know enough. I know enough to give advice on certain things, but I still have so much to learn. Um, but the pride is a hindrance to people's progress because they tell themselves they're throwing 500 feet when they're not. And they tell themselves they shot 14 down when they really had five foot faults, two out of bounds, and they took five mulligans. You got to be honest with yourself and tell yourself the truth. And when you play a bad round, if you're not willing to own why that round went bad, you're never going to improve. And I, I hope this doesn't come across as calling people out, but we all know somebody who says, I throw 550. And I got, I did those form reviews this off season. We ended up getting like 90 emails with people sending videos. I'm still working on them. I got so many. And one of them, uh, a young man sent one in and said, I throw 560. I can't seem to throw further. Can you help me? And in the most polite way I could say, I said, here's what you can do to move better. But looking at your form, I have a hard time believing that's happening. And I didn't mean it rude. I was like, man, I just, unless you're just muscling and you caught a tailwind, I, I don't see it. So I encouraged him. I said, please be honest with yourself. Walk off 400, walk off 450, and see if you're really throwing that far. Um, because I do think it's a hindrance, and I think pride stops a lot of people because they won't listen. And I am always asking questions. Shoot, when I play with Paul or Rick, I'm asking questions during the round, not so much that final round, but I want to learn from them. These guys know they've been there, they've done it. But if you think you know everything, you're no longer a student of the game, and you're going to plateau pretty quick. 
Yeah, that's some that's some good advice there. And it's hard for a lot of people to do. A lot of people are I mean, I suffer from it sometimes thinking I'm going to make every putt, which you kind of have to have that, right? Um you have to trust yourself and believe in yourself, but yeah, it's it's uh it's definitely interesting when you got the the people out there that just think they're hands hands above others and then you watch them throw and I don't know, it's more power to them, but I agree. Just just Take take the salt every once in a while. Take the uh, take the the bad news and kind of take a step back and think about your game. And I think it'll, like you said, it'll pay dividends and you'll you'll learn a lot and play much better. So everybody can teach you something, mm-hmm. whether you're watching Paul and Simon or whether you're behind an MA fifty card at a tournament. You know, some of those guys can ball, and all those guys have one thing, at least one thing that they're really good at, and you can pick up stuff. So if I if I am playing casual rounds with people or practice rounds, if I'm playing with on when I'm out there, I like to play with Alden and Gannon and those guys, or sometimes I hop in with some teammates and play with Clemens. And I'm always asking questions because that's how you learn. But I think pride stops a lot of people in that they honestly believe that they're shooting 15, 16 under. Maybe they are, but it's a practice round. Anybody can do that in a practice round. What are you doing when the pressure's on? And I know I've had rounds where I thought, man, that was really good. And then I go back on the ride home and I think back, I'm like, well, I threw two drives on that hole. So that one doesn't really count. And it was my second putt that went in and I blamed it on, I wasn't, you know, my feet weren't set. Those count. And it, that there's no legitimacy to that round if you're throwing multiple and playing your second. So I don't know, an unpopular answer. I don't mean to call anyone out, but you got to be humble. You never, you're never going to know everything. No, I think people need to be called out. I need to be called out. Uh, I will never sit here and be like, yeah, I'm the guy who can throw 500. I, ask me if I can throw 350 consistent. I'll probably tell you no every single time. Ask me if I can throw 300 consistent. I'll still probably tell you no. But uh, definitely I have had my fair share of putts where I'm like, well, you know, I wasn't really trying the first one. The second one I was actually trying on. And so it, it's okay. Like I, I've done this to you before, Trenton, where I'll be like, hey, if this goes in, you know, ball doesn't lie. It, yep, yep. it was good. So, um, but, but I also think something that's very important about this. This is something that I know. Uh, practice rounds, right? When I first, very, the very first tournament that I ever did, I did like three or four practice rounds beforehand, and I was doing those exact things. Oh well, you know, I'm not gonna have that bad of a drive. Let me just throw one more. You know, because that's that's not going to happen in the tournament, right? Oh, well, let me just pay, make one more putt. If you're not putting any pressure on yourself and you're not holding yourself accountable, what happens in the tournament when you do have that bad drive, when you do have that bad putt, and then you just put yourself in a horrible mental space that you're unable to recover from? I've done it. Trenton, you've done it. Logan, you've done it. Every single one of us has, has done it before. So I really like that that final one that you need to be honest with yourself. You need to be humble. And it's okay that you don't throw 500 feet. 90% of disc golfers do not throw 500 feet, and that is okay. It's okay that you don't make 100 out of 130 footers. 90% of disc golfers cannot do that. That is okay. But something I think that is important, and that will kind of what Logan was saying, you know, always be an active learner. You can learn something from everyone. If you subscribe to the podcast right now, if you're new listening to the show, you're going to get those tips not only from Trenton and I, but Pros like Logan and other pros that come on the show, even if they're not pros, even if they're an amateur like us, everyone has something that they're good at and that they can share and that you can pick up on and learn. That's kind of what makes our show different and can allow you to become a better disc golfer. One question I have for you on this topic, Logan, is what are the kinds of questions that you're asking the likes of Paul, Ricky, Gannon even, Simon, Chris Clemens, when you're playing these rounds with these other pros and you're saying that you're constantly asking them questions, what are your questions to them? Most of the time it's shot selection or shot shape. Hey, why did you choose that? Is it just because you're comfortable or do you see something I don't? I really like practicing with Chris because he's a southpaw, so he sees things different. And so when he's throwing a forehand, I'm throwing a backhand. When he throws backhand, I'm throwing forehand. And... I like to play with people who see the course different. I see what I want to see. And most people are the same way. When they step up to a hole, I see the shot that I want to throw. That doesn't mean it's the best option. And a lot of that comes from experience. 
I don't shoot Gannon. There's a 10 year age gap between us and Gannon has more experience on the course than me. So he sees things a whole lot different. So I do ask about mechanics. Why do you hold it the way you do? Is there a reason you ran up that way on that shot? Obviously during rounds, not so much, but when I've played with Paul, it's during round one of tournaments. So it's not super tense, you know, and you have to know when and when not to, because there is a bad time to ask questions. Um, but I have, I have relationships with those guys too. You know, those are my friends. I'm, I'm definitely closer to Gannon than the rest of them, but, um, you know, I, I'm honored to call Paul a friend. We're not sharing hotels or anything, but when we play together, we smile, we laugh and we have a good time. And I appreciate that about him, that all of those guys, I am the product of other people pouring into me. I didn't get here on my own. And if I'm going to climb any higher, it's going to be people helping me as well. I'll put in the work but I got to have people help me. It's almost like a NASCAR driver. I'm the one on the track driving the car, but you don't see the gas man, the crew chief, the lug guys. You don't see all the people helping me. I mean, this is a team effort for sure. Logan, are you a big NASCAR guy? Yes. Yes. Who's, Let's talk who's about your, this. Who's your favorite? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I'm a big racing guy. Okay. I drive to survive, got me into formula one and I keep, just bringing it up on the podcast. If there's an over-under of, am I going to bring it up on the podcast? The juice, it's going to be pretty positive. So so uh, first off, do you watch Formula One? Second off, or let's do first off, favorite NASCAR driver team right now. Second off, are we into Formula One at all? Okay, first, Hendrick Motorsports. I like the Chevy boys. I like uh, Chase Elliott, Kyle Larson, Alex Bowman, and... Who's the 48? Why am I, um, or the 24? Byron, William Byron. Uh, the yeah. four Hendrick drivers, I really like them. I like Rick Hendrick. Um, Kyle Busch, now that he is not driving uh, for Gibbs, I like him. He's with um, RCR, Childress. So, uh, yeah, big NASCAR guy. The Harpool House shut down three times a year when I was little. Thanksgiving, Christmas, and Daytona, and Daytona's next weekend. We're waiting on this. It is. We're waiting on this Super Bowl, but, you know, <laughs> the real fun starts next week. So, uh, no, I've never really been into F1. I appreciate it, um, but I don't know. I just have never followed it that much. I'll watch the Rolex 24-hour race, but mm -hmm. there are so mm -hmm. many. I feel like there's so many manufacturers in that, too. There's Mercedes. There's BMW. Now Ford is getting back into it. I, mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm just partial to the Cup Series. And I was raised pretty, I don't want to say redneck, but I'm convinced I didn't wear shoes or a shirt till I was like 13. We were in the country. We raced go-karts. We watched NASCAR. And it's still in my blood. So, yeah, I'm counting down the days to Daytona. No, that's awesome. That's that's really cool. I feel like when I I used to nerd moment, I used to play fantasy NASCAR with my dad as a child. Kyle Busch was and still is my favorite driver out on the course. I hate Brad Kozlowski. Um, Brad Kozlowski and Joey Logano are two dudes I cannot stand. Hate those guys. Um, and, yeah, I kind of got away from it for a little bit. And then if you haven't watched Drive to Survive, you, Logan, you absolutely should. It's really, really good on Netflix. It's, it's the Formula One. They're, they kind of have something similar to that for NASCAR now on – YouTube. I think it is on like the CW, but who is watching the CW? <laughs> so like you can get it on YouTube and it's actually, it's not that bad either, but uh, yeah, man, Daytona should be a ton of fun. The clash was pretty fun. It was definitely weird waking up and seeing Kyle Busch was in trouble with the Mexican police a couple of days after that. And uh, I think it's gonna be a great season. I think the entertainment value keeps getting better and all that stuff. So I'm excited. Yeah, one thing to segue this back into disc golf, I've told some people about this. I think their format for playoffs and championship is awesome. And we, the disc golf uh, pro tour championship is that format, but it's in one weekend. Whereas I think if we were to structure it, because our playoff events are this year, they're D-Glow and MVP. I don't know if there's a third one or not, but imagine, and I don't know what courses we would use. We could use Hornet, we could use D-Glow MVP, Hornet's Nest, and then finish at wherever they played last year. I forget the name. Yeah, the, what was the name of that course? Uh, in North Carolina. It was just on ESPN2. Yeah. Yes. Dang. I'm drawing a blank. Wherever they played the, the championship. Mm -hmm. You start, you have your top 16 in points or world ranking, whatever. 
You play a week, it's down to eight. Play a week, down to four. Play a week, down to two. Now, in NASCAR, it's every two weeks, I think. And they'll start with the round of 16, the round of 12, the round of eight. And then in four, whoever finishes the highest on that final race out of those four is your champion, your Cup Series champion. So you have a points champion, and then you have the Cup Series champion. And I think disc golf, if you if they were to adopt a five-week-long playoff, now that's a grind, and it's already a long season, so I don't know if that's sustainable, but we already have playoff events. The only difference is our championship is condensed down to one single weekend. And there's been talk. The World Championship has always been a weekend. But what if the World Championship was an elimination process and then the world title is between only four? Imagine the hype around that one card. That would be incredible. That would be so much better. So much better. I mean, literally, that makes more people want to watch. That's why NASCAR has its success with those people coming in. And I think that's where NASCAR is a little bit ahead of Formula One in the fact that Formula One, Max Verstappen is going to win this year's championship. I'm going to tell you that right now. It's minus 105 on FanDuel. Put your house on it because he is going to win the championship. There is nothing, unless Mercedes has figured it out, but which they kind of looked like they were at the end of the year. Red, Red Bull's car could Max suck. Verstappen. They're not going to suck. They're not good, Red, but it they could are suck. not going to suck. <laughs> it could, right? But it's one of those things where last year Max got out to such a massive lead that halfway through the season, the Formula One season was over. Everyone knew Max was going to win, right? Like there was still six races left or something like that, and Max had already been crowned champion. It's not fun to watch a five, six, seven, eight round event on the same weekend where, let's say, for Logan, it would be fun. But if Logan's winning by 20 strokes against everybody, except for us and the people cheering for Logan, it's not going to be super exciting to watch. But if you do that elimination process like you're talking about, Logan, that's going to be so much more exciting. You're going to be able to draw more people in. You're going to be able to draw more sponsorships in. I love that idea. I think that's a really solid idea. And they're already doing it. Like that format is the bracket, or I don't even know if it's a bracket, but it's elimination style in that final day when they had Paul, Rick, Gannon, and Isaac on that final card. That was awesome. So they're already doing it. I just, I've always thought NASCAR's model was pretty cool and they draw the playoffs out and then I don't know if you guys remember, but Chastain passing through by doing the wall ride. Yeah. You guys remember that last year where he video gamed it against the wall? I mean, that was to transfer through and get to the final four. So when you get down to that last, obviously the last lap, or if it were disc golf, you got three holes to go and you need one stroke to advance through to the next round. You got to go, which like I said, they have, it's just all in one weekend right now. So maybe it gets drawn out, but maybe our system is good the way it is. I feel like, I mean, I see what you're saying, but I feel like it could be, like, over two weekends. Have, like, uh, instead of, like, I don't know how many rounds. I don't remember how many rounds it is. I'm sorry. But if it's four rounds, you play two re- two rounds. Um, so the round of 32, the round of 16, and then the next weekend it's the round of eight, and then the round of four on Sunday is the final round. I feel like that would be cool because you could build a little bit of hype for the last eight guys or gals. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Just to add a little I bit like- of suspension. Suspense. Sorry. Mm -hmm. I think the world's model, there's been a lot of chatter about that. The world's model, they want to spread it out, but the masters in golf is not spread out over multiple weekends. And even tiger has said, I I love tiger. I'm a huge tiger woods fan. And he's even said, everybody gets hot for periods of time. And you just hope that a major falls in that time frame for you. Mm -hmm. And it was Scotty Scheffler last year won. I don't know how many back to back to back events, and now John Rahm's starting off with two in the desert, and he's going to charge this weekend at Waste Management Open. He had a decent opening round. He's got a shot. And so, I don't know. There's You see it both yeah. ways. I kind of like Worlds being, this is the moment. Show up at the majors. That That's the name of the game, and there's a few people that do every single major. There's a few people that rise to the top every time. Agreed. Um, what would you say is the Daytona 500 on the Disc Golf Pro Tour? Vegas, because it kicks it off. That's the nice. the opening. Now, they call Daytona the Great American Race. So if we're going on like a, a vintage stop, probably MVP, because MV, Maple Hill, they've yeah. been playing that for years. I mean, ever since MJ hit the gopher, you know, there's a lot of history there. So um, MVP is pretty notorious. Winthrop, 
I mean, that might be the Daytona 500. They've been playing that for a long time, but they've ch also changed that course too. And I don't know how much MVP has changed, but uh, yeah, it's tough. That's Daytona is pretty iconic. It's hard to to yeah, kind of no, absolutely yeah. Who do you who do you got winning this one? Man, I don't know. If you look at the last two winners, it was Michael McDowell because he was in the right place. He ran a great race, but he was in the right place at the right time. And then Austin Sindrick last year, kind of the same thing. Whoever doesn't wreck, if you have a decent yeah. car and you don't get caught in what they call the big one that wads up 20 of the 40-car field, you got a good shot. So it's what I always say to my dad and my brother. They're fans too. It's like, man, you got to stay healthy for 500 miles. With, And I try to tell people this. I hate arguing why NASCAR is cool to people. 40 cars going 200 to 205 miles an hour, inches from each other for 500 miles. Unless you've, like, I went to a race at the Kansas Speedway last year. And if you've never been and you can go, go. Because when the, we were on the infield, we did the garage walk and everything. And I didn't have, I had gun muffs, but I didn't have them on. And when the green flag dropped and all 40 of those cars gunned it, my ears bottomed out. Like it was just a rattle in my ears and you feel it. Your whole body is vibrating. And I'm just thinking, what are the guys in the car feeling right now? If I'm feeling this here, what are those guys feeling? It's insane. It's, I understand how it could look boring on TV, but my goodness, if you can go to a race, go, because it's amazing. Yeah, I hate the argument that people say left turn, uh, a disc golfers, but NASCAR drivers, <laughs> Formula One drivers, all they do is like going on left turn. They're not athletes, bro. I drive next to a car that's like seven feet away from me, and I'm aggro. I am pissed off. Get like you're too close to me. They like you said, they're literally inches. They are touching each other. They are doing all these different kinds of things, and you have to stay mentally focused. I mean, have you ever gone like 90 and you're kind of tripping on the highway because you're like, oh my gosh, I'm going so fast right now. These dudes are going double that, and they have to be technical, and there's someone literally right on him. Like all of that is so yeah. so difficult, and and that's funny that you said that about the Kansas Speedway. My my wife and I, one of the first sporting events that we went to was we went to Kansas the Kansas Speedway for a race like four or five years ago, something like that, and my little naive self was like, I don't need any you know ear protection. It's gonna be fine. It's gonna be fine. Sitting up time, no big deal. I couldn't hear for weeks because it was so loud. And it would be calm, and then the pack would go by again. I was like, oh, I literally cannot hear anything. And like you said, if you've never been to a race, when they do a restart, there is no sound in this world like that. It is absolutely insane. Oh Yeah, and pit road speed, like pit road on TV looks like they're going in a school zone. Pit road's like 50. <laughs> <laughs> we were standing there when they did the, the pass by to check because they don't have speedometers either. They don't have speedometers or gas gauges. So when you understand that, there's a crew chief calculating. We got a headwind on the back stretch. We've been driving hard. We probably need to stop for gas. We might be able to make it. Who knows? So they're watching RPMs, knowing how the car's set up, guessing if they're speeding or not on pit road. And then at Talladega or Kansas, it's wide open. But yeah. I could go on with NASCAR all night. Trust me on that one. Sweet. I'm just glad that I finally have gotten another person on this podcast who we can talk racing with, Trenton, because I feel like I try to bring this stuff up to people, and they just kind of give me this, like, ah, ha, yeah, absolutely, that's cool. Um, I think that it's time for me to get out of here. So uh, that was that was really good. One last question. I, I'm bringing the racing stuff in one more time. I – have been a lot into Formula One lately, so I'm not exactly sure if NASCAR does something like this. But in Formula One, they have the manufacturer's championship also, right? Because there's two. So there's Red Bull. There's two drivers. Mercedes has two drivers. Ferrari has two drivers. Dunless. There's 10 teams. And those two drivers compete to get points just as they are in the individual. But, you know, you add them together. That's how you get your manufacturer who wins. Do you see any value in adding a system like that? to disc golf like let's take team dynamic discs you have the team of dynamic disc guys you've got the latitude 64 you've got discraft innova um prodigy you know all these different manufacturers and let's say the top 50 on each weekend get points 
would there be do you think could that add any kind of excitement could that add some drama maybe more to play for like hey the teams at the end of the year who finish x you know one two three down the line get a bonus the players get bonuses for those kinds of things i I just feel like that's something that could add a little bit more to the tour but i don't know if that's trying to do too much that could be cool i've honestly never thought of that before uh the first thing that comes to mind is that some teams are a whole lot bigger than others and so it's yeah. you know in NASCAR there's four drivers here four there and maybe two on the smaller teams so it's pretty even but you have some teams that are much 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 bigger versus there would be some that really wouldn't have a chance if you take like a, a Lone Star last year probably yeah. didn't have much of a chance you know Chandler would have had to put everybody on his on his back I don't even know who else they had on that squad this year they'd have a chance but um, I don't know that's interesting that I think it could happen. Um, It'd be interesting to know, you know, there's more and more NDAs in people's contracts where they can't talk about, but it'd be interesting to know what's in there about team bonuses and things like that, because I'm sure they exist. But uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't, in terms of, you know, we have the Champions Cup. It would be interesting if they're maybe not a major, but test out a pro tour event where it was teams by manufacturer. That could be fun. But then you'd have to choose your top four men and top three women or something like that to play top or yeah. four and four, yeah. four men, four women. And they, they throw down. So that would yeah, be interesting. That, that would work. Or, um, like, I think the way that I had him, I mean, maybe you declare like these 10 players can earn points towards this or something like that, whatever it want to be. But I do like that four and four and they just kind of do tournament like that, that, that could be, that could be really good as well. I don't know. I just think at the end of the day, it gives the fans something else to watch. It gives the players potentially something else to play for. You know, let's say you're chilling in 35th and there's really no difference between 35th and 30th payout wise, maybe a couple hundred bucks here, but maybe that gets your team ahead of the other team. And then, you know, maybe that can lead to more down the line. And I don't know, just a thought that I think down the future could make disc golf a little bit more interesting to watch. I know I would be tapped in a lot more to what's going on ladder down the cards. I, I, we got a press release today from the disc golf pro tour that there's going to be a lot more live action. And, and it looks as though they're going to be covering a lot more than just like the main lead card, which I think is good for the sport because the more people we can get on camera and the, and the more of a broadcaster is, I think that's going to do wonders for the sport and, and the players playing it. But that's all I got. This has been an amazing podcast, Logan. Thank you so much for joining us once again. Where can people continue to follow you and connect and learn more about your journey? And mainly on Instagram and Facebook. Those are the two I'm most active. I don't have Twitter. Um, it was a lot of drama the last time I looked at it. So I got I read a little bit, but I don't tweet, so there's no point to having it. So uh, Facebook and Instagram. Mainly Instagram is the best way to get a hold of me. Um, everything on Facebook is through Instagram anyway. So just at Logan Harpool, YouTube has kind of taken a back seat. Um, I'm just focused on playing right now and being the best I can be. I do want to vlog a little bit, but it's, I don't know. I'm still, now that I'm settled into touring, I might do it a little bit more, but I'm still focused on getting there, practicing, playing and vlogging is a whole nother animal that I don't know that I have the time or energy for. So, yep. Instagram is the best way. And, uh, I'm still getting form reviews. Um, if you send it now, it's going to be a pretty solid wait before you get it back because there's still some in the queue and I'm not jumping to the newest one. So um, if you have sent me one and you haven't got yours yet, I'm sorry. Please be patient. There were a ton. I am going to get back to everybody, I promise. Heck. Yeah, well, thanks a lot for coming on. And everybody, make sure you go check out Logan Harpool on all the socials that he just mentioned. And we will see you on the next one.